Coming up on this week's episode of Destination Linux, we deep dive into the topics of Linux appliances, how open source can save lives, Raspberry Pi ventilator project, community feedback, gaming, our software spotlight, tips and tricks. All this and much more coming up right now on Destination Linux. Welcome to episode 170. This is a podcast about sharing our passion for Linux and open source. Destination Linux is a show for all experience levels, so whether you're a beginner to Linux or a master suitor, welcome to the show. I'm Michael, and with me today are the world-touring trolls of Linux, Noah, Ryan, and Emma. Okay, so... The world-trolling trolls of the, the movie. The the oh, the Trolls stuff. movie. Okay, maybe it's, yeah, maybe the screenshot should have, like, troll hair for everybody or something for the That thumbnail. would be pretty cool. Sure. Let's find out what everyone's up to this week. So, uh, Emma, what have you been up to? I actually downloaded the uh, Pop! OS 20.04 beta, and I did some user testing with Carl and our UX designer, Maria. And some of my feedback actually got into some changes, which felt pretty cool. Nice. I've been using it, um, trying to memorize all the tiling shortcuts and seeing how I can optimize my workflow. And it's been pretty smooth, pretty fun so far. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I, I like some of the stuff. I, I like that they that you are, you are doing a tiling shells like extension. Like I actually haven't tried the beta. I just took the one from the GitHub and put it on. So I'm looking forward to trying out the beta for that. Uh, it still needs to be plasma, but uh, you'll you'll get there. You'll get there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, Noah, how have you been? Good. I've been staying busy. Uh, obviously, working from home and getting a lot of uh, side projects and home projects caught up on, and um, have continued to expand the volumio system that's at my house so anybody that's kind of been uh, following along either on asno or destination linux talked about them on both places but um, volumio is an open source project for uh that you install on a raspberry pi and then it provides a web interface for controlling music and so what i've done is i put a rack full of amps down in my basement and then run each one of those amplifiers to a separate zone in the house and put a separate volumio box i'm splitting those out the advantage of that is the volumio ui actually supports multi-room audio and so that way when you pull up the volumio app you just choose which room you want to control and whatever song you click on will start playing in that room it comes complete with volume control as well as a fully functional API. So I've been able to tie that into Home Assistant uh, to generate um, alerts and stuff on the hour or um, I have it tied into our ticket system. So if a new ticket comes in, it plays an alert in my, in my bedroom and down in my lab. So I know that somebody's looking for help. I've just found it to be a really extensible, fun project to kind of play with and dig into. Yeah, it sounds amazing. Yeah, that's very cool. Have you looked into that? It's obviously not going to be better than that, but there, I found this new thing where you could do pulse audio over Bluetooth. And you can send it to different yeah, devices. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, yeah, I have seen that. So you can use like your you can use your your desktop speakers as a, essentially as a Bluetooth speaker for your laptop. Yeah, it's kind of like a DIY volumeo in a way. Right, I just thought it was right, interesting. Right. No, it is. It's very cool, especially because there's a lot of people out there that have all of their music on their phone, and so when they're in the car, it Bluetooths to their car, and so they're de- dealing with it that way and listening to the music when they get home. There's no easy way for them to do it now. Maybe they've invested some money. In a in a nice set of speakers for their uh, for their desktop, wouldn't it be great if they could take advantage of that for playing the music? And now, of course, that they can. Yeah, that's awesome. So, Ryan, what have you been up to this week? So, of course, we had our live patron chat, which was awesome with the community yesterday, and really yeah, thanks awesome. everybody who showed up to help keep it entertaining and and fun. Had a lot of great discussion. One of the topics that came up 
was something that's been on my mind for quite a while. You know, I'm a huge fan of raspberry pies. I have more than I would like to admit of them within my house, cars, and everywhere else. But there are all these other devices like the Raspberry Pi out there. One of them from a company we all love a lot, Pine64. And so I've not actually tested any other boards like this from other companies. So yesterday I ordered the Rock Pro 64 and we'll be doing a comparison of that device versus the Raspberry Pi 4 in upcoming videos to just kind of play around and see what the differences are between the two. I also ordered the nice aluminum case that they have, some of the accessories to add in external additional hard drives and things. So we'll see what we get out of that, but it should be a lot of fun. Very nice. Actually, I'm really interested in seeing like what kind of support it has for all of the various like uh, you know appliance based distributions and whatnot. Because it looks like a you know pretty powerful you know alternative to the Raspberry Pi. So put, yeah, definitely yeah. from the specs. Yeah. So what have you been up to, Michael? I have been doing quite a lot, uh, mostly for backend stuff for DLN and variety of different things. But I actually found something pretty interesting recently that is it's something I've been wanting for a very long time, and it's not that important, but I, I like the idea of it. And it is uh, like an overview system for Plasma. So it's kind of like the way that GNOME does their showing you the desktop and then also showing you the windows at the same time. Uh, I found something that was a KWIN script actually called Parachute. And it allows you to have the same kind of thing, except it has the desktops at the top. And then it has the windows displaying like the normal present Windows style. And it's really cool. The fact that it's a it's, it's not it's been around for not that long, uh, just like a month or so. And because it's a KWIN script, it doesn't have to re rely on like changing anything with the actual like window manager. And it works quite well. I mean, there's bugs, of course, because it's brand new, but it, it's surprisingly cool by the like how far they've gotten with such little time in it. So, uh, so I'm, the advantage is it gives you a preview screen of your desktop and a preview of all the windows you have open. That's the big. Yeah, it's basically like, you know, when you when you look at the desktop workspaces and stuff like uh, on GNOME, they have the workspaces on the right side. Uh, mm -hmm. It's basically taking that, putting it at the top in like a row style and then the windows beneath it like that. Uh, it's just a nice way of combining the two. And uh, it's something that Plasma has been missing for a long time. So when I found it, I was like, this is really cool. I got to tell people about it. So I'm actually going to work on making a video to showing how to use it. And I've also done contributions to make suggestions and improvements and stuff like that and bug, some bug testing. So uh, I can't wait to, you know, finish that video whenever that happens in 2021. 2022. Maybe. It could, be, it could happen that way. This episode of Destination Linux and the entire DLN is now sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized making managing and scaling apps easy with intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and so much more. You can get access to this, plus their world-class customer support for as low as $5 per month. Or you can use their flexible pricing structure for as low as 0.7 cents per hour. And as Ryan would say, that's darn near free. And there's actually something I recently was like messing with because someone talked to me about like, is there, and they were trying to do some uh, testing and bug, bug testing with me on a, a platform that we're using, a service that we're, we're using for the DLN. And they found something that thought was kind of weird and they wanted to, you know, see if there was a way to check it in the DigitalOcean droplet. So I, I was like, okay, well, I have to SSH into this. Well, I got a new, new machine. I got to set up all the keys and, oh, wait, 
there's a web console. I can just load up the web console, run all the scripts, and it take it took me like three minutes to get everything done and tested yeah. and solved. So that was fantastic. And that was there's so many features like that that make DigitalOcean just awesome that you definitely need to check it check it out. And in addition to that, they also have over two thousand cloud agnostic tutorials to help you stay up to date with the latest latest open source software languages and frameworks. And you can get started on DigitalOcean for two months for free with a one hundred dollar credit by going to do.co slash dln. Again, you can get started on DigitalOcean with a $100 credit for two months free at do.co slash DLN. Use that URL to let them know that you came from, the, you're a fan of the Destination Linux network and you want them to continue to support the network and support this show. So do that if you're interested in checking out DigitalOcean. And we want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of Destination Linux. This week in community feedback, Morrow writes us to say, Dear Ryan, I blame you. Now, because I'm the one who scrubs and decides which emails go in here, normally I would just delete this and move on to the next email. But this week I decided to continue on to see what the rest of the email said. And it goes, when we started our little project to find a stable and newbie-friendly rolling distribution, you assigned me to test Solus. Then, since we both got busy with other things, having completed my Solus review and feedback, I thought to be helpful and try Manjaro. I used Manjaro in the past, and I did not enjoy it so much. However, I do not want to be like those people that dismiss distributions for issues that happened many years ago. In the past, for example, someone that still bashes OpenSUSE for using the amazing Butter FS. Hmm, no, who could that. that be? <laughs> That's why I kept this email on just for that sentence right there. All right, so I took Manjaro for a spin on my Ryzen Radeon 7 desktop. I was impressed. Everything was fast, stable. XFC is probably the best theme out there. GUI utilities for kernel drivers and more. Everything at users' fingertips and no need to be a command line master to do those. Gaming, no problem. Vert Manager KVM, no problem. Audio, video, and productivity, no problem. Easy to enable snaps and AUR from the software GUI. Install TimeShift and TimeShift AutoSnap from AUR so I get automatic snapshots every time I update the system. So in the remote chance that it breaks, I can roll back. Next, I thought, let's see how NVIDIA Optimus works. Until now, Ubuntu was the only one to get it right out of the box with NVIDIA Prime. Took my laptop, wiped it clean, installed Manjaro XFCE, live ISO boots and installs, no need for no mode set or other grub magic. Latest NVIDIA drivers support offloading so you get Intel plus NVIDIA that work together out of the box. Wow, amazing experience overall. So as I wrote earlier, I blame you. I know I volunteered to test Manjaro, but I blame you anyway. Now Manjaro XFCE <laughs> is spreading in the house and replacing all my installs. No more fun distro hopping for me. What now? I beg you, please contact the Manjaro team and ask them to please make some stupid mistakes and break it. I see no other way to break free from this amazing Manjaro and enjoy distro hopping again. Best regards, Maro. So that's an awesome email. I have very similar experience to you with Manjaro as of late. I know, Michael, we talked about it yesterday. Yeah, I also in the blame you. Chat. Uh, Manjaro is spreading out there and uh, it's definitely curing a lot of people's distro hopping situs or whatever we call it because it's pretty darn good. And I agree, the only way for this to really fail and for the momentum to stop is for them to break it. So let's hope that doesn't happen. Well, and in case you want to have some other reasons to interrupt, then maybe you could hope for that. But yeah, I, I, I actually, I blame you too, because I know I've tried Manjaro in the past. And the, the thing that you said multiple times on the show that made me feel like, oh, you're right. I don't want to admit that, but you're right. Sometimes... I will latch on to something and it could be years before and I would use it as an excuse to not try something. And that's, that's fair. I did do that. And uh, he mentioned this in the, in the community feedback as well. So it, it's when I did try it after many years of not trying it, I was like, uh, okay. Yeah. I blame Ryan. 
That's very sweet of you, Michael. Now, if we can get Noah to try Butter FS again, I think we'd all be in a better spot. <sighs> Did you it, listen to last week's episode of? of so now let's show? talk to let's see what Michael's <laughs> feedback. Michael, what feedback did you see in the community? <laughs> so Ted writes us to say, "Hey y'all, longtime listener, I really enjoy the shows at all you do. During the time of crisis, I was reminded by a friend of an effort that I used to participate in the folding at home uh, with the COVID nineteen pandemic. Folding at home as an effort uh, as an effort to help the production of vaccine or antivirals." It also, of course, has a Linux client. A full disclosure, you can preferentially request COVID-19 projects, but you can't only do those. I have been a longtime Linux user, currently running Pop! OS. Uh, but Gentoo will always be my favorite distro. And yes, Ryan, I have run Arch before. Uh, one final note, though, not specifically stated on the website, I believe that there are 40% gain in computing speed running for folding at home whilst sitting on a tuck stool. I agree with that. Completely Is that true. true? Hundred wow. percent true. It's 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 more gain than RGB on gaming for FPS as well too. Science uh, is amazing. <laughs> exactly. This is keep up the good work, Ted. Uh, yeah, we actually have a, a team for DLN. That we'll have a, a folding at home team that's linked in the show notes. It's two four zero eight six nine. And this is if you'd like to support uh, the you know the folding at home project, you can use that to be a part of the team for DLN and uh, let everybody know how much the community is helping out on this this very important topic. Awesome. I'm very excited to do that. Yeah. Really? So you're going to set up some of your GPU power while sitting yeah. on a stool or no? Because it doesn't. On a balance ball. She has a balance. Why would you b- bother with a this? Ball. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, that helps too. I yeah. hear. Why would you, why would you bother with a stool if you have one of those? Good point, Michael. Why do you have a stool when you Because I don't have one of those. Ball? That's that's my net. It's going to my shopping cart today. Extra one. Uh, perfect. You be working your core. Perfect. Is it pink? Please tell me it's pink. Oh, of course yeah. it is. It has to Send be. that to Michael, please. I'll pay for the shipping. We love hearing from our worldwide community. We have many ways for your voice to be heard. You can send us a short email or a video that may be incorporated into the show. Send your video links or comments to comments at destinationlinux.org. So you think you're an open source Linux purist and you live, breathe open source on your Linux, on your Linux laptops, on your desktops, maybe even your phone. Well, not so fast. Today, we're going to call you on your purity because if you don't own an all Linux based appliances, you're just very 1991. Let's start with the devices that you may want to look at that runs Linux. First wow. up is open source TVs. That's right. LG uses WebOS. Now, if you're not familiar with WebOS, after the Palm OS days, Palm eventually decided to try and reinvent their Palm OS with a modern new operating system that could compete with iOS and Android, and they called that WebOS. Later, it was open sourced, and eventually HP purchased the Palm platform, and then that was the operating system was later opened up to TV companies to be used and, and sold to run TVs. Now, if you've not used it before, what you'll find is it is surprisingly great. It's also a standard for TV manufacturers to come up with a common interface so that when you go to a smart TV, it's getting updates. It's getting security updates and there is a there's a there's a consistent way to operate across brands. Panasonic is using Firefox OS, which is also based on Linux kernel. Samsung Philips are using Linux-based operating systems to power their devices. If you haven't heard of Kodi, it is my absolute favorite media center. If you're focused on local media and you want local media that runs right, you can think of Kodi almost kind of like a self-hosted version of Netflix that runs entirely inside of your network. And so what what I have done is I've actually installed um, Kodi on a bunch of either Raspberry Pi 4s 
or the NVIDIA Shield. Now, it's gotten a little bit difficult in the past few years. Uh, previously, you were able to use a IR remote. And so I, do I have one down here? I don't. Uh, there's a the, the remotes that uh, that I buy are made from a company called Intiset. And what I like about them is they're $19.99 and they can control up to four devices. And so you, you can either learn an IR code from an existing TV. So maybe you have an older TV or an off-brand one that doesn't work, work so well with some of the traditional uh, universal remotes. Or they have a very large code base that you can just enter in the code. One of the codes that they support is... Cody and one of the codes that they support is the NVIDIA Shield. So if you have either of those devices, if you have Cody running on a Raspberry Pi in the form of Open Elect, which is a distro specifically designed to run Cody, or if you're running Cody on mm. the NVIDIA Shield, uh, both of those can be controlled with an IR remote. Now, the advantage to that is when it, it's, it's all about the wife factor. When the wife comes down and says, I want to use this, and you hand her the Bluetooth keyboard and the trackball mouse and go, look, honey, isn't this great for being able to get perfect precision on the, on the user interface on our television? She looks at you and says that the, there shouldn't be a user interface on the television. It should just be able to turn it on and start the movie. And so what the Innocent allows the rest of my family to do is just push number two that, and says right on there, uh, NVIDIA Shield. They click on that, and then they're able to use the up-down arrows just like they would on a DVD so player. So funny story, uh, Noah. You talk about that. I, um, I set up a media center where I custom-built this beautiful mini ITX computer system yeah. for our home. Right. And it was amazing. And yeah. you had I had the wireless keyboard and the wireless mouse and even a little loved it, right? Bluetooth keyboard. She actually got used to it because she's used to oh, suffering she? through my technology things. Ah. But the issue that came in when relatives would come over and we'd be like, hey, thanks for babysitting the kids. And they'd be like, oh, how do I operate the TV? <laughs> and you would sit there like, oh, okay, you're going to need this keyboard. You're going to need this mouse. Like, we need to, we need to go, but we'll, we'll stay here for 30 minutes to show you how a TV works. <laughs> exactly. Just, like uh, just go ahead and watch this series of tutorials I have on my channel and you'll know how to operate my television. <laughs> No, but 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 really though, I mean, it it really does. We don't think of that as nerds, right? We don't. We and so when our six-year-olds and seven-year-olds come up to use the television, we have to make that approachable. And so what I found is Cody has a user interface specifically designed to be run on a television. And when you pair it with something like the Innocent Remote Control, the 422, now you have the ability to control it in the same way that you would control a Blu-ray player or a TV or Netflix or anything else, but you're controlling local media. And so one of the things, I, in fact, literally today, uh, right before Destination Linux, my wife and I were up in our bedroom. We were watching a documentary on coronavirus, and it's, it's put out um, on the site called the Epoch Times. You, I wasn't able to stream it to the TV, or at least I couldn't find a way to do that other than something like Chromecasting, but that's dirty. Who would do that? And so what I did was I just downloaded the, the MP4, stuck it in my, in, my, in my free NAS box, which is, by the way, using ZFS, not ButterFS. That's how I know that oh, media is going to be safe. And then uh, opened it up on Kodi and was able to sit there and watch it on any TV in the house. So it's, it, it, is, it is such a good staple. If you haven't used Kodi, if you don't have it set up in your house, you should run, not walk to the nearest computer, and then set it up. Now, if Kodi uh, isn't but, up but your Before out, we move on to that, though, I wanted to point out there was one thing that you can also do that's really cool is there's an app. Uh, called Core, and there's also another app I think called Yahtzee or something. That, but is Core this, is is, the, is this inside of Kodi? Are you talking? No, this is an Android app that turns your phone into a remote control through Core, gotcha. like this app. Okay. It's it's a really cool uh, way of doing it. If you don't have one of those universal remote controls, you can check that out. Uh, and also, uh, Noah mentioned OpenElect, but check out LibreElect, which is the fork of OpenElect because they have this weird mm. like falling out sort of thing. And, and the LibreElect 
version is a lot more up to date. So that one is definitely worth checking out. They're both good. It's just Libra Elect has kind of like I the newer version. Use, I actually use Libra Elect. I've just I've I've gotten so used to calling it Open Elect that uh, I still call it Plex, even though it's not technically Plex. It's uh the fish one, the other one. Jellyfin? Jelly yeah, yes. jellyfin. But I still call it Plex. My family still calls it Plex. It's not Plex. <laughs> yeah, that happens. So there are a couple of other devices that you probably want to be aware of, and uh, we'll include Roku. I'm also going to throw the Fire Stick TV. There Ew, are really? Well, no. Here's why. Hold on. No. Here's why. So with the Roku, um, there are custom versions of Linux OS called Roku OS that you can flash onto it. Now with the Fire Stick, you can actually flash alternative ROMs onto them, but there is a okay. trick. There is a there is a software fuse inside of the device, and so if it detects non-signed um, firmware, <clears throat> some of the Fire Sticks have an electronic fuse that burns and bricks the device, preventing you from using it anymore. So you have to be careful. But there are guides on the internet that allow you to flash Cody onto uh, a Fire Stick TV. Yeah, you so actually sideload it through an Android device. I've done it right. because somebody mm -hmm. gifted me one of those crappy Fire Sticks, and I was like, Yeah, no, never going to use that. They're not. They're like not crap. It's just they're spyware. You know, they right. they have a ton of spyware from Amazon built into them, and that's why I would never use them in my home. But you can you can replace the OS, which is nice. Right. And, and so where I get to with that, if you're purchasing a device, you should first choice, in my opinion, should be at NVIDIA Shield because they're just they're so good. If you can't afford that because they're, they're like 300 bucks, um, the second choice would be something like a either either a either an Intel Nook or a Raspberry Pi 4 running Open Elect or Libra Elect. And both of those, I've had pretty good luck. It, the only problem I've had with the Raspberry Pi 4, if you're streaming Blu-rays over Wi-Fi, I've had a number of problems. Yeah. And that is not a limitation of the network because it works fine on the NVIDIA Shield. But I just don't think it, I don't know if it just can't buffer a fan of the process, whatever it is, but it doesn't work very well. Um, it, so it hangs up a little bit. It's still usable. It's just your movie's going to pause some point through the movie one, one or two times. And so you're then, basically saying, hey, if you're going to... We're talking about how you open source your whole home here and the possibilities you have to open source your whole home. So we've covered Media Center. What about routers? Because this is an area Noah, I know you've done a ton of research in open sourcing your home through routers. Is that possible? So where I've started with open sourcing routers, if, if anybody, if you're going, if you, if you're the person and you're saying, oh, I'm so embarrassed, I have the cable companies thing that's there and it probably still has the default password. In fact, the Wi-Fi password is a little sticker that the installer that gets paid $15.99 stuck on the bottom uh, of the, uh, of the cable modem. And that's where I find where my Wi-Fi password, if that's you, your first step is something with, is something like, OpenWRT. And the advantage of OpenWRT is it is an open source firmware that has a little bit more bells and whistles and a couple more knobs and levers that you can twist, but you can load it onto consumer grade hardware. So you can flash it on your probably your existing router. If you want to well, probably shouldn't if, if your only existing router is directly from your cable company, you probably shouldn't flash it there. You know, you say not with that, that attitude. Do it. I, I, well, I, I mean, if you I, if I they know. have to take it back, they go, uh, what's this? They're well, like, I don't so, know. Somebody hacked me. It's your fault. You should have a more secure network. Take it back. So a few things. So a couple things there. First of all, if you're leasing your modem, you should stop. You should never lease a modem from your cable company because uh, it, to, to purchase a cable modem is going to set you back 80, 90 bucks, maybe 120 bucks. Now that we're getting into um, uh, some, of, uh, some of the new features and stuff. You also, I would never encourage you if you don't have one and you're going to purchase one, I would never encourage anyone to purchase a modem, switch, router, access point, firewall combo because the problem is it's kind of like a spork is it a 
particularly good fork? No. Is it a particularly good spoon? No, but it's a fork and a spoon all in one, but it's a really crappy <laughs> fork and a really crappy spoon. Purchase separate devices. Have the cable company provide you just a cable modem. Most times, even if they tell you that there was that there isn't just a cable modem available, what you can do is ask the cable company to put your cable modem into what's called a bridge mode. And what that will do is it will shut off all of the routing and wireless functionality of that router and just let it do a, a straight pass through to your router, which should be something like open WRT, or if you want to purchase something, NetGate actually just came out last year or the year before, just came out with a updated version of their SG-1100 or SG-1000. I don't remember what the new one is. Yeah, the 1100 is the new one. It's a $200 ARM-based security appliance. Now, these devices, they, they sell for 200 bucks, but here's the thing. These devices we have used inside of hotels uh, with up to 60, 70 rooms. And so the way that we calculate that is we figure that there's going to be two adults and probably two children. And we'll figure that each person probably has four devices because they have mom and dad each have a cell phone and a tablet and mom and dad each have a laptop and each of the kids probably have a tablet. And so by the time you're, and that's kind of how we base our load when we're doing Wi-Fi for hotels. And we have found that those SG-1100s can keep up all day long, no problem. Now the SG-1000, the previous version, which you can still find on eBay, didn't keep up quite that well. But let's say you say to yourself, I don't know if I want to spend $200 on a router. No, is it really worth it for PFSense? You can take PFSense and actually install it on any old computer you have. And you can go to Amazon. We'll have a link in the show notes. You can purchase what's what's called a quad NIC. And it's basically a single PCI card that contains four individual one gigabit network jacks. And what you can do with that is you s stick that into any old computer, um, some old Dell Optiplexes or even the old HP Elite um, little for thin form, form factor PCs, which you can pick up on eBay for $50, $60. You throw one of these $99 quad NICs in there, and now you have a now you have a really powerful router, even more so than what NetGate is offering, and you've built it yourself, so you understand the complete ins and outs of, of, of those devices. Um, I know that in the home labs I see on Facebook, I'm in all of those groups, and, and I know that Cisco, I know that um, SonicWall and um, some of the others are very popular uh, for inside of home labs. I don't like them. Most of those companies require a service subscription to get updates, and a lot of people blow that off and just say, well, I just won't update it. I'll just I'll use what it is. It worked good enough for me. And yeah, that's true, but when security vulnerabilities come up, you have no defense against them and you can't patch them. And we've had things like Heartbleed come up that you want to patch. So I would, unless you're working in a corporate environment and you have an IT budget to, 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 to pay for the Cisco service contracts and so on and so forth, I would probably stay away from those devices. I think that's good advice. I, I don't know. Emma, are you running any, is your, do you have a smart TV that's Linux based? Are you a purist here? Do you have open source routers or any of that or played with it yet? Or are you inspired yeah, to now? I am. Well, I want to look into open WRT now. Um, but I actually, I have smart TVs. They're just Sony, Samsung. I have like one of every brand. Right. Um, I do have a fire stick. I have a couple Chromecasts, but I don't feel bad about it. <laughs> they work. They work for me. But I would like to open source everything instead. Yeah, I think that's the, the the point. I think a lot of us went through, you know, when when these companies were marketing these twenty dollar devices that were doing really cool things, turning your TV into a smart device and speakers that you could talk to and have personal assistance. All of us, from a technology standpoint, were taken by this technology, including myself. I thought this is amazing. This is awesome. 
And then all the privacy stuff came out about Chromecasts and Fire Sticks yeah. and all of that. And I don't think people should feel bad about it. But I do think it's interesting when you look at the alternatives that are out there that you can take this still cool device that costs you very little and make it more functional, more private, more secure. And you also get to play around with it and kind of understand how it works a little more in doing so. So I think these are fun projects that even if you can't afford out to go out there and get new equipment, maybe you can find ways. And this is what the open source community does best to hack the equipment you have to make it more featureful or useful. Yeah, sounds like a fun afternoon. It's one of the reasons I like the open source alternatives is because it just gives you something to to try out and see if it is better. Uh, Like I think Cody is a fantastic solution. Like there's so many, there's so much value in Cody that it's just like, it's surprising like how, how useful it is while also being like not the most popular project ever kind of thing. And I think that it's, it's done this. They've done a really good job, especially with the latest versions where the interface looks very modern and it looks like a full, like, uh, you know, a nice TV design. And I, I'm a big fan of Cody and I've actually done some kind of work with Cody in terms of like bug testing and stuff like that. But I also created a project that's on my GitHub. If anybody wants to check it out, it's a, Chromecast for Cody sort of thing where you can send your like links from your desktop or laptop and have it play onto your Cody device. And it basically takes like, if you have a YouTube URL, you can send that YouTube URL to this script and it will then send it to Cody device on your network and start playing directly in the plugin that's for the, uh, for the Cody device. And I, it's really cool. I haven't updated in a couple of years or so, but you know, it is there. Somebody wants to check it out and maybe if you want to help contribute to it, that's an option too. Uh, but it's, I'll a, tell you it's one really other nice. thing. Before you move before you move on, it's called Cast for Cody. Cast with a K. That's oh, important. Oh, come on, Michael. That's Did important. You, you followed the KDE naming convention there. <laughs> I'm so ashamed. Uh, you're welcome. Please, Noah. Please pick up. So uh, one thing I want to point out, I, I one, one of the questions I get a lot in my day job when, when we're setting uh, TVs or, or, or home automation stuff up for customers is they say, should I buy a smart TV? If you don't have any TVs, when I'm buying a new TV, should I buy a smart TV? And I've always told people, buy a smart TV, don't buy a smart TV. It doesn't really matter, but don't put it on your network. Don't use the functionality of the smart TV. And here's why. The processor inside of the TV is not very powerful. I mean, it may, might be powerful the day that you buy it, but the, it effectively doubles or so every year as ARM processors continue to get more and more advanced. And so when you have a, a, an outboard NVIDIA Shield or outboard Kodi device, it, you can simply cycle that device and use the TV for what it's really designed for, which is displaying a good picture. When you're picking out a TV, look for who makes the panel, look for what the resolution of the panel is, Look and make sure it has it has a good picture, and pay no attention to what the operation mechanics of the smart part of the TV are. You shouldn't be using that anyway. And if you can separate those two, again, it's back to that spork syndrome. You're going to have the best fork and the best spoon. It, the, use the TV for what it's good for, displaying a good pictures. Here's something else. When you're purchasing an 85, 90 inch television, which is pretty popular now in living rooms above fireplaces and stuff like that. Why would you want to spend $900, $1,000, $2,000 on a device that's going to be outdated in two years and got to pull it off the wall and put a new one up? Put a solid display up that has a really good picture that's going to last you 10, 15 years and then cycle the media player every two, three years as technology evolves. I agree. And a lot of the, I had a situation where one of the updates after, of course, the warranty that they automatically sent to one of those smart TVs actually bricked it. And because it was out of warranty, they didn't care and weren't going to fix it. So you know, I don't 
have my smart TVs connected up to receive updates anymore. Once I get it, unless there's some patch when I look through the firmware that I absolutely have because a feature was broken, it stays with the firmware version that it came with and everything basically runs through a box that's attached to it. So going and looking at other things that are, you can really become an open source purist. We And, and we jokingly say that, but Last week, we did discuss how important open source is. So I think these are fun projects, especially with everybody being at home that you can look into and see what you can do. Car manufacturers also are utilizing Linux. Well, some of them are. There's actually the automotivelinux.org, which is a conglomerate of Honda, Mercedes, Ford, and others who have come together to have kind of a standardized open source Linux operating system within the vehicles themselves. And you don't have to go brand new either. There are cars like the 2013 Cadillac XTS that actually ran Linux. In my case, I took my Honda, which had an HDMI port from factory and plugged a Raspberry Pi into it. So when you put it in park, Raspberry Pi turns on, you can play games, you can surf the web, you can do all of those things right there. And I use my phone as the hotspot. That's how it gets its internet connectivity. So there's a lot of fun things you can do to turn your car open source as well. If your car doesn't come with one of those HDMI ports, a lot of the aftermarket radios now do. And as long as it can display that on the screen, be a fun way, fun project for you to set up in your vehicle. So you, your car, like without having to add anything, there just there was a cable that was there was an HDMI port that was somewhere. Yeah, they had an HDMI port right in the front console, and uh, you could plug in. You know, for plugging in phones, HDMI to mini HDMI or other devices that you may want to hook up. So I was like, I wonder if it'll run a Raspberry Pi. And sure enough, it does. Um, And the Raspberry Pi, of course, can run off the USB power outlets in the car. So because it's so low power requirement. So as soon as you put my car in park, the screen comes on, the Raspberry Pi boots up. It's a feature they already had built in that requires it to be in park for the video to come on the screen because they don't want people driving down the road, having movies playing and things like that on the front console. So as soon as you put it on park, that's when the Raspberry Pi kicks in, which is really cool. And I thought this was another project where I thought my family's going to be like, what is this thing? Get it away. But I installed it. My wife went to pick up the kids in the car line and I received pictures back of Minecraft being played from the Raspberry Pi uh, through the car while she was sitting in the wow. car line. So she figured it out immediately. What, what, kind of, what kind of car is this? This is a Honda yeah. HRV 2019. I've never heard of an HDMI port. I haven't either. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. I have a 2019. HRV, a 2019 HRV, huh? Well, a lot of the aftermarket radios have the HDMI ports as well. So if your car doesn't have, you have an older car, it doesn't come with one. If you do get an aftermarket radio, make sure that's one of the things that's included as an HDMI port because you could do really cool things with that. Yeah, that is pretty awesome. And another thing that's pretty awesome is there's a lot of other products that exist that have Linux powering them, including... Apparently, Samsung has a washer and dryer set. So if you want to have a, your, your clothes being powered by Linux, you apparently can now. So that's pretty cool. Or washed, I, washed I saw products. Those at, I saw those at CES. They're pretty neat. You can wash your clothes while you're not home. That, that's pretty this cool. This actually also made a buying decision for me. Because I wasn't going to, we were going to buy a new washer and dryer. And I looked up online which one of the ones I was purchasing actually ran Linux. Uh, so I was like, I'm going to get this one. Then I saw the price tag and was like, oh, I'll get the one that doesn't run Linux. I don't care because it's a thousand dollars more. <laughs> but the point is that almost made a buying decision for me here. Yeah. They're really expensive. My gosh. Wait, 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 hold on. It up. almost made a buying decision for you. And then you decided Linux wasn't worth. Yes. A, a an extra thousand dollars. Thousand dollars. Thousand. A couple extra bucks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah right. 
So you weren't willing to spend a few extra dollars. I see. Yes. For Linux. That's true. And you call yourself you a purist. That's good. Man. I know. I'm not. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. What's a thousand dollars, Ryan? Come on. <laughs> but also there's, there's a lot of other things like uh, you can do TiVos, like DVRs. You can use those. They have, they're running by Linux, uh, a modified version of Linux, but Hey, there it is. Uh, and also what's really cool is that there's, there's multiple CCTV uh, projects now that allow you to have like a closed circuit television network of, you know, surveillance systems and stuff like zone minder, for example, is one we've talked about previously on the show, but there's also quite a few of them. I don't remember the latest one, but there's a new competitor that's in the open source market for zone minder. And that's, it's really cool that that actually is becoming a thing that people are, you know, creating a market around because, you know, like if you go to look at the, options for cctvs on like you buying like a package or a kit they're like ridiculously expensive for like the least amount of value period it's like 360p video for like 600 dollars. like yay and let's be honest the one thing you're going to really want security around and people not hacking in especially if you have a family with kids is cameras you set up in your home so something you should really not be going out there and and putting you know, the off the shelf, really inexpensive Amazon cameras all around your home because people are all over the news, live employees monitoring that stuff, people hacking them, you know, talking to your kids through those cameras. They are not secure. So that'd be one area where the money is not as important as the security uh, that, that knowing you have Linux and something you control and can keep offline in your home. So in that particular case, you'd be okay with spending the couple extra bucks. Yes, in that case, I would spend the thousand dollars, but not to wash my clothes. Your clothes, <laughs> yeah, your clothes. You don't care if your clothes get. get uh, clearly, I could care less about my clothes, so we're right. good. So, some other things to be on the lookout for: your GPS, Garmin, and TomTom out there uh, also run Linux. Does anybody use GPSs anymore? They just use their phone, uh, probably. Just I use the GPS too, but I didn't know if I was weird. I'm, di- I'm directionally challenged. Uh, I get lost in the McDonald's parking lot. I need GPSs everywhere. As as Michael found out when we went yes. to self the last year and we have this home that we visit, uh, not because we know the person there, but because that was my spot. I would constantly turn around when I missed the turn. So we went to this. Um, we went to this. Uh, actually, Noah, there was this uh, burger joint we went to and, and uh, we went to it one time and it was like it was pretty good. So I, I told uh, we told Noah about we wanted to, you know, try show him, check it out. Like and we went back again. And what's funny is that on the first time we got we got there, I think this was 2018 as well. We get there and we we miss the turn the first time. We go back mm-hmm. and we get, we go to the next road and we turn in and it's this person's house. So then we come back with Noah and we miss the turn again and turn back in the exact same house. And then a year later, we miss the turn again and turn back in that exact same person's house. <laughs> and it's like now it's kind of a thing and it's your tradition. I, wish, I hope that person listens to this show and one day they'll come out and greet us as we're turning around in their parking lot. <laughs> yeah, so. That'd be awesome. And finally, of course, you got watches. There's plenty of Android watches on the market if you count Android as Linux, which technically it is, but it's kind of like the bloated version of Linux yeah. with privacy invasive crap all over it. But there's Pine Time coming out, so that's something. Pine Time would be a really awesome one to have. Also, Pebble. Does anybody remember the Pebble watch? Yeah, didn't the Pebble get canceled though? It did. But, you know, you could still find them out there. You could still kind of hack it and, and make it your own. But the Pebble was one of those things that, I don't know, should it have died? It seemed like it was super popular and then just... Yeah, it, it, it died because it was bought out by another company who killed it. Oh, that yeah. makes sense. I forgot what yeah. company it was, but I remember it being purchased and people were like, no. 
because they already had a watch. Our chat saying it was bought by Fitbit. Well, that explains yep. why it went down the tubes. Yep, they killed it because they didn't. They, it competed with the Fitbit. Yeah, that's that, a that shame. I remember the Pebble really taking off. There was also an IBM watch, and I looked to find one. This is retro now. This is super retro that apparently ran Linux back in the day. So I went on eBay trying to see if I could swipe one of these up. I have a link for it here. It looked pretty cool, and I would have loved to have worn. It's kind of like wearing a Casio uh, calculator watch. I would have totally sported this retro IBM watch. If anybody has one, send it to me. (laughs) But that was pretty cool to know they were out there doing that. Yeah, that is pretty cool. IBM did a lot of stuff back in the day for Linux. So I'm curious, out of everybody here on the show, does anybody have and actually use a smartwatch? No. No, I don't have a watch no. at all. I have Noah, you, are, you have no, Google Glasses. You have yeah, every piece of technology on yes, the planet. You don't yes. have a smartwatch? No, and here's why. The smartwatches are for what? To give you more notifications, right? To collect data on you and send that back to whoever it is your, your, your chosen poison is and to give you notifications. Well, you know what the two things I don't want? I don't want to send analytics to anybody and I also don't want notifications. If I want notifications, I'll look at my phone when I'm in the mood to see who is trying to get a hold of me at that point. Um, Google Glass was different because it wasn't about that. It was about collecting information for yourself. It was about taking pictures and having that accessible to you. It was about being able to ask for a piece of information and have that information presented immediately to you hands-free without having to pull anything out, without having to look for anything. I walk into a room and I want to know if there's Wi-Fi or somebody says the internet's down, right? That's probably, I'd say that's 30, 30% of our trouble calls are the internet's down. That means a thousand different things, but you walk back in and instantly I see what IP address I'm getting on the public network. If I'm being able to ping out to the, to the, to the WAN, can, is the gateway up? Those kind of things. Having that information just presented to me immediately is remarkably useful when you work in IT. So I just, I saw Google Glass as just a, a, a much different device than the smartwatches of today. I, I agree with that. And your point about notifications, I mean, if you have, in my case, you know, I can be called into work at any time and you have people emailing all hours of the night, another device dinging at me. And if you turn the notifications off, then why am I wearing the watch? It's just really hard for me. And then another device to charge was the other thing. Like another device, I have to worry about the battery. I have to put it on a charger at night. It just never took off with me. And as a technology person, I always thought it would, but it didn't. So Emma, any smartwatches in your life? No way. One, I don't like to wear watches or anything bulky because I type a lot. And I'm sure other nerds do too. Yeah. But it feels like that it, the watches for other people's convenience instead of your own because it's, it's interrupting you by making you look at what they have to say instead of you looking at it on your phone at your leisure. I just don't think it's a necessary tool. I mean, that's, a, that's a good point, but I, I have to give you, a, give you a counterpoint. What if you use the part where you can use your phone and talk to it, talk to the, have a phone call through it, and then you have a yellow coat and a yellow fedora, and you can do role playing like Dick Tracy, and then you just have. Oh, you just, come on. What? I'm giving you an option for why the smartwatch is Nobody worth wants getting. to role play Dick Tracy not Every, since the 80s. I mean, psh, maybe you don't. <laughs> role playing Dick Tracy. I, I don't it's not come to... up in your list of things, huh? It's not on your bucket list. That's shocking. It's on Michael's. He wants it's, to find somebody it's not, to play Dick Tracy I want someone to do it. It's it's on my wanting to see someone do it, not me. I don't. I would have to get a smartwatch then, and then I'm not going to do it. Uh, but I actually I might with the pine time. I actually might get a smartwatch then because I I think that there's a lot of potential for that, and the fact that it's so cheap, I really don't have much reason not to do a role playing as Dick Tracy once the pine time comes out. 
Yeah, if you start wearing a yellow coat and stuff, you're going to more look like uh, Curious George's Keeper than Dick Tracy. That's okay. I got to make sure I get the yellow fedora. That's what makes it the the ensemble. Like, how big is the font on a smartwatch? Because I feel like a a six-point font is just too much for your eyes. I think it depends on the interface because I think they they replaced well, the interfaces for depending. There's on no the, way the, Noah could see it. Let's put it. That uh, here's way. The, here's <laughs> the thing. The, the the I think really when at that point what you're really looking for is what's the resolution on the on the on the watch, right? Because that's going to depend on how clear the text is. Um, and I think particularly with the higher end watches, they have a fairly high resolution display. I, I purchased a, yeah. a, a very high end audio recorder and the screen is maybe only an inch and a half, two inches uh, wide, but it's such a high resolution display that the, they can pack a bunch of stuff. And as Ryan has correctly and, and correctly pointed out, my eyes are shot. So if I can see that, I would imagine that most people could. Well, there you go. Here are some items you can go and start working on to get yourself to be an open source purist or at least just add some more open source into your life. But I think the cool thing here is definitely taking a look at some of the devices that you have that you might be able to repurpose into open source. So hopefully you found this discussion helpful. Yeah. And a lot of people don't know the how far what people do with the toasters. I just want to see what people can do with it. I know that people want to put Linux on a toaster, but I want to know why and what they would do. So I feel like this I would make toast. Well, what time is now? I, what a rebel. I like this suggestion, and I, I have a, an, a, an idea that people might want to do it. If they have toasters that have screens on the front or specifically the side, I want you to paint it silver and then make it have like the screen that has like a red line that goes back and forth. So it's like a, like a Cylon. But because they call those toasters in the okay, so here, how about this? Why don't we do a competition where we can give away a I don't a know Cylon a Steam, toaster, a Steam gift card or something for the person who sends us the best Linux toaster. So if you want to hack your toaster, send us pictures of it or video of what it can do. The winner of that, we'll, we'll send we'll send them a nice little something, right? Depending on where they're at, because it's hard sometimes just to get ideas. swag kits and stuff I just certain countries. Yeah, and also if you do this, be, be sure to uh, hashtag it when you send it to us. Uh, DLN nailed it. Yeah, and it has to be able to make toast to Noah's point because that's an that's what part. I would do with the toast. I would I would just make toast and eat toast because toast is good. That's true. Sure, that is all. The toaster challenge. Yeah. So last week we talked about the importance of open source, what it means to us. Open source is also being leveraged though to save lives out there. And you'll see this in the next two stories that we're going to cover. So the first here is from Duke University, where the power of 3D printers and repurposing equipment, much like we talked about in the discussion above, hospitals already have on hand. This is allowing them to create protective medical equipment with what they have, because we know everybody's having problems getting supplies in for saving lives in in this pandemic. So Duke engineering professors Ken Gal, Paul Ferris, and Eric Richardson tackled the task of turning the surgical helmet, which uses room air, into a powered air purifying respirator, which uses filtered air. The Duke engineering team worked closely with Duke's Innovation CoLab, which has 65 3D printers to print and test numerous prototype designs. The design is available out there for others to 3D print on their own. So they've open sourced the designs to help other hospitals that need to use this and repurpose equipment that they have on hand that's not particularly useful for them in this particular situation. So I think this is cool and shows the power of open source and also the power of 3D printing. This wouldn't have even been an option 
prior to 3D printers. But 3D printers open up this whole new element to people to be able to get involved and help. And I see those who have 3D printers at home are also creating designs and things for people that they're sharing out there to help creating masks or other devices and things. So it's, it's quite amazing to see the community and open source coming together in this way. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those examples where you talk about the their 3D printers when they first came out. People were like, "Yeah, what what would you print them?" Like, and they just started making like you know random things that were like uh, statues of stuff, paperweights, whatever. whatever. Yeah, just yeah. nothing that nothing that really made significant like impact or whatever. But then all of a sudden, people start making all these different kinds of things that are useful, like parts for different machines and things like that. And then now, in this case, even making it possible for making your, your own respirator if you have the parts. Like that's an awesome an awesome thing that they're doing. And I also love the fact that they open source it to allow other hospitals and everything to be able to uh, use these if they wanted to. And I think that is just fantastic. So this is a lot different than an open source ventilator. So that's good. Uh, respirator thing that you wear on your head that, that filters air ventilator tube down your throat, forcing your lugs to breathe. Cause you can't 40, 40% chance of getting off that ever, or just dying on it. Uh, one, I would not be real cool with the, with the raspberry Pi powering the other one no problem, right? I think that what you have seen is that when you take a technological community and you focus them all on one problem, what they can come away with is nothing short of miraculous. If you call GE or Philips or any of the other companies that make stuff like this and said, hey, we need you to, um, we have a project for you. We want a new respirator and we want this respirator, we want the design to be open so you're not going to make a ton of money off of it. And then um, we want you to release the designs to everybody and you have to be able to print it on a 3D printer. What company would take that up? But you have people that are sitting down in their basement going, oh, you need a mask? You need personal protective equipment? That doesn't exist? And they're all made out of plastic? Geez, I can run 50 of them out here. Joe, down the street, he's got a printer. I can run another 50 down there. And all of a sudden, now you have hospitals being supplied with this stuff. And I, I have a good friend of mine that works in a hospital in Dallas. And the personal protective equipment that they're using to fight COVID-19 was printed on a 3D printer because of projects like this and because of the work that people like this have done, putting this forward and saying, here's a project and we're just going to open source it and give it to everybody so everybody can advantage or, or take advantage of it. The thing that I guess I, that just leaves me scratching my head just a little bit, why is it? How many times does open source have to succeed? How many times does open source have to come to the rescue and prove that it is a better model for doing pretty much everything, a more efficient model for doing everything, before we can finally all agree that if it's not open source, we probably shouldn't be concentrating on it? Because this is this is just iteration one, right? Even when COVID-19 is long and gone and we've, we've, we've quote unquote beat it or we've moved on or it's cycled through and we have herd immunity or whatever it is. People are still going to be working on it. There's going to be people that this is going to become their their pet project. And it won't be because some government agency gave them money. It won't be because um, they have some prestigious job where they're required to research head-worn respirators. It's just because they're a passionate person about a passionate project, and they're going to continue to put forward their best foot. And I just think that's really cool. And I think it really exemplifies how powerful open source can be when left to succeed. But here's one of the risks to it. I, I would not be surprised. In fact, I'll be shocked if it doesn't happen. Then after the dust clears here, there will be companies out there suing some of these people who've put these sure. diagrams out and utilized parts that they have patents for and basically ruining the whole open source system because the patent system 
in a lot of ways is the anti open source, right? Absolutely. Uh, it keeps people from being able to do things like this. When I thought about the story initially, it reminded me a lot of space missions out there where we hear the cool stories like in Apollo story of Aldrin using a pen in order to fix a switch on the spacecraft or repurposing different equipment to be able to save missions that are critical and how cool it is of human ingenuity to be able to do these type of things. And the patents are really, in a lot of ways, some of the things that hold this type of stuff back. Yeah, we actually have like the worst kind of situation where people have, you know, doing the software patents on top of that, like so all software patents are garbage. They should get rid of them. Uh, you know, product patents, there is some argument to say that they need to exist because there's there's certain times like gigantic companies that would, you know, just step on them if they find it because you need someone to fund it and that kind of thing. So there is some value to patents overall, but software patents should just, you know, completely be destroyed. And I think that the, these kinds of things where if it's made to be open source, it should kind of like, who are you going to sue? Like the, the people who don't make any money from it? Like that just seems kind of ridiculous. So I think there should be kind of like it'll this, happen. Well, yeah, it'll probably happen. I'm just saying, like, I would hope that there's some, there should be an exception where if you're not trying to make money from it, you know, you shouldn't be able to be sued by it or something like that. I don't know. The patent system is broken. I, I think I, I think the I think the problem is this, right? Just playing that. I completely understand where you're coming from, Michael, 100 percent. And and I it's it's weird for me to take the other side, but I'm going to try. I think the, the difference is we should want people to choose to want to be open source, not that we should force people to be open source. And the problem with with alleviating any sort of civil penalties for somebody who duplicates a design is that it fundamentally bypasses copyright and trademark law. And, and that it, it has been abused to the point that none of us really respect it. And I think the vast majority of us say that we'd be better off without it at the same time, that trademark law and that copyright law, the ability to, if you come up with something new and innovative and cool and very useful to somebody else's life, that you're going to make a lot of money. That, is the reason that we continue to move forward as as a as a culture and i think that's that's a really valuable thing i think that if you take that incentive away then all of a sudden there aren't companies like philips and ge that are that are on the cutting edge of ventilators and respirators and if that stops happening it does trickle down because then the older technology that that is undoubtedly being used in these 3d printers and so on and so forth those people no longer have access to it because it's still being held by these by these massive the problem and, and i agree with you but the problem could be fixed because your point of hey this is there's some there's a reason we created these laws they have some purpose but they've been abused nobody's addressing the abuse because they like the abuse because the abuse person is generally the general public who no longer right. even after 10 years can't make this device that's been out there for 10 years or can't replicate this this medicine and make a generic version of it that's been out there for 10 years because we abuse the patent laws and that's really what needs to be fixed right so there's um, a large company i don't know if you guys are familiar with medtronic they make some of the most yeah. popular ventilators that hospitals have been using for decades um, but they actually released the designs for their their uh, most common ventilator, the Puritan Bennett. They've been using that in hospitals for 10 years, so they know it works. They know it's effective. But they released the designs um, and all the plans, and the only stipulation is you just can't call it Medtronic, and you, you can still sell it, and you can make it. You have all the files that you need, and it's op all the plans will be open until 2024. So I, I think that's that's a good example of a company kind of ignoring the trademarks and the patents and just 
letting people create so they can make things better instead of making absolutely things. yeah that's awesome yeah, i love that I, I have two I I would have two questions though. The first is how can you open how can you release the plans only until twenty what happens in twenty twenty four? And then my second then my second question would be if they've used it for ten years, is it to the point where they're working on something else so that they don't care about it? Is that why they're willing to release it? Or is it that Probably. is is it actually motivated by, oh, we want to help out in the crisis? And I, I guess I just kinda of question it when it comes to large company. Any large company. It could not be all of specifically. Yeah, it could be that, but I mean, it's it's their most popular portable ventilator, so, mm. so you know, still very, at least they very did it, and work. I think we we give them praise yeah. for that. And they probably have new technology after twenty twenty four that they want to keep private at that time. But hey, they're they're doing the right thing yeah, at this moment, and I think that counts yeah. for something. Yeah, even if they were to, you know, even if they were to like to re like close it back or whatever, they're still doing it for like at a time period where it's the most important that they do it, and I think that that's fantastic in itself. So we don't know if they're going to close it back or not, but I think that you know even if it is because they're working on something in the future that it will be better or whatever that it they they are taking the initiative to say that we know that this is a good product and we know that it will help save lives, so we're going to make it even more accessible, which is fantastic. So whatever they're doing, whatever motivation they have, I'm like, yeah, that's fine, whatever. Thanks. So, Noah, I know you weren't too keen on this next story. It kind of falls in line with what we're talking about. But Marco Mascaro, a robotics engineer, built a ventilator because he knew the machines were in high demand to treat COVID-19. And he he created one using a Raspberry Pi, or at least it cre- it's a big part of the ventilator. That's the, not the only piece of it. The rest of the equipment's made from plumbing, car pieces from cars, hardware stores, and things. Now, I know you're going to say... We talked about this a little bit earlier and laughed about the reliability of something running off a Raspberry Pi. We all had issues, even my Screenly here, which runs on Raspberry Pi randomly locks up sometimes and you kind of have to reboot it. But if you're desperate, you have no other means of getting a piece of equipment in. And that means you as a son, daughter, wife, husband have to sit there and monitor the thing the whole time. Something's better than nothing. And this is kind of pretty cool that people were, instead of just sitting around the house complaining, going out there and trying to find ways to create something to help. Yeah, very much so. I, I think that, I, I think what I would say is this, if you, if you go into it understanding that only 40% of people that are ever put on a ventilator with severe rep- respiratory distress come back off a ventilator. So if you go into understanding that, and that's with a respiratory therapist there, the other thing that you have to understand is the way that a ventilator works. It's not, you know, the, the, what they do is they, they give a very heavy sedative that also relaxes the muscles. Then they insert a tube down the throat in, into the lungs. And then they verify that the tube has actually been placed in the lungs and not in the stomach because it's much easier to get a tube into the stomach than the lungs. And so typically that's done with x-ray or, or, or some sort of imaging technology. Then what they have, then they start the, the ventilator and our lungs are really designed to work on negative pressure. And so it's, we're never designed to have air forced in through our mouth. It's designed to have a sack pull the lungs apart and then the, then the lungs negative pressure sucks air in. And so every breath you take on a ventilator is doing permanent damage to the lungs. And so the, there are all sorts of ventilator settings that they use to try to limit the amount of damage that's being done to the, to the lungs. The way that they evaluate that is by taking labs, uh, blood draws every couple of hours and running those labs and then, and then adjusting the ventilator settings based off of that lab. I tell you all of that to say, 
it is it is almost not worth considering trying to run a ventilator inside of you. It was somebody with severe respiratory distress, as would be the case in COVID-19. It would almost not be worth doing trying to do that in your home. You probably run a risk of doing more damage than good. All of that said, if you have a hospital and that hospital has a respiratory therapist and they have the 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 um the pharmaceutical agents that they need to do it safely as well as the laboratory to do the testing to implement the setting safely in that very limited circumstance a open source ventilator would be a great tool because if if the hospital has exhausted their resources what every hospital does or what every service does is they ration care they take it to the most severe cases and so what they may what the, what this project may allow a hospital to do is take somebody who isn't quite on the verge of death yet or isn't quite at that point where they absolutely have to have a ventilator but would greatly benefit from letting their body rest for a little bit and allowing those doctors to give that person a second chance. And so do I think that there's no value in it? Absolutely not. Do I have concerns about the reliability of, of something this critical being run on a Raspberry Pi? A little bit. Although I have to admit, I have a Volumio box that's been running for three and a half years. It's never once crashed. Yeah. So certainly if, 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 if careful attention is paid to the power supply, careful attention is paid to the code, it's certainly possible um, to get a very good reliability out of a Raspberry Pi, and certainly are they getting better and better. There is a discussion that seems to be occurring online that we just have a device, and so, oh, you're having a hard time breathing, you just connect up to this device and turn it on, and then now you're safe for a while until your body heals, and then you get back off of it. And that's complete, that's fantasy compared to what actually happens to vented patients. And so I think having a good understanding of the science and how, and how complicated of a process that really is. Um, I had a family member worked in the ICU for two and a half years. All they did was vents and she still, she still would not be able to come home and tell you, uh, well, this is what you would do for this because it's such a complicated process. I think that's fascinating information that I, I wasn't even aware of. I haven't looked into all this. But the one thing that I think is amazing is the open source community. And as Bo would say, right, if you're in the open source community, you like to hack, hackers hack. And this is what people are doing. They're, they're finding solutions to problems that others might be able to utilize using common items that could be found in plumbing stores, other things to try to find solutions for this and not just sitting there staring at their TV, yelling at it, saying, you know, complaining about the thing. They're going out there trying to find solutions. And I, I just think that's amazing. That's what I love about being a part of the open source community. So up next in the show is our software spotlight. And we're going to cover a couple of things in this one. Uh, one is going to be open source, which fits perfectly with the last couple of episodes. And the other one is not, which <gasps> is, I just want to talk about it. So first of all, uh, Adam IDE. Adam is a free and open source text and, uh, text editor. Uh, it works on uh, Mac, Linux, Windows, everything basically. And it also supports for a lot of plugins, which is one of the most powerful things about a text editor. So it has cross-platform. It also has the uh, package manager that's built in for those plugins. It has auto-completion, you know, finer place, the, 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 the fundamentals of like modern text editors and stuff like that. It's also built on HTML, JavaScript, CSS, and Node.js. Uh, it uses the Electron framework. It actually is kind of like the initiation of the Electron framework. Before Ele before Atom, Electron didn't exist. And Electron was kind of like branched off from Atom. So if you want to get an open source text editor, then Atom's definitely one to check out. There's there's many other ones as well if you want to check out that are kind of like similar to Atom. But Atom's a really good one for that purpose. If you don't mind if it's proprietary, then check out Sublime Text because uh, it's a better. And... Uh, 
that's not to say it's, that it's not, it's not, not. This, no, it's not to say that it's better just because it's proprietary. That's be ridiculous. But the main reason it's better is because uh, Atom is essentially a clone of Sublime Text, and uh, Sublime Text has more plugins and is better and and, but, and uh, use less uh, resources. Sublime Text is not open source. So that's true. Way to be a purist, there. Uh, that's Michael. true. I mean, you you are you weren't a purist earlier, so I can like one hey, example. Shut up. <laughs> just because I didn't spend an extra thousand dollars on a washer. Is not a comparison of hit clicking the download button. I'll tell you why I put Adam on I here know, this week. I know. I just like Sublime. Okay. I was taking a Python course from an amazing professor at University of Michigan, and I'm hoping to get him on the show. But this is the one he trains people on for learning mm-hmm. Python. And in trying to learn Python in the past and using other IDEs, there, there can be some frustration there depending on how well they interact with Python. I found Adam to be amazing for handling Python and just the formatting, the suggestions and things that it has. So if you're wanting to learn Python, um, hopefully we can get this professor on. He could talk about some of his methods of teaching and Python and things because I just think he does an amazing job. But awesome. Adam is just a great IDE for that, I found. So check that out as an option. Yeah, definitely. Adam is a really good one for Python. There's, there's Depending on what you're doing, there's different editors for different purposes because they, they all work better for different examples because they all right. try to be something for everything, but they also all focus on something specifically like VS Code is be- better for Visual Studio type stuff. And uh, with Python, Atom's a good option for that as well. Uh, I like I just like Sublime Text because it's kind of like the orig- originator of the multi- multiple cursors and basically everything that is you know, copied in all of these other editors now or from it's from sublime text. And I also really like the fact that sublime has like, it's a native application rather than electron based. So it's a lot less resources and all that stuff. But I will also admit that it doesn't have as good of, of a uh, implementation for Python testing and stuff like that. Cause it doesn't have a built-in interpreter and all that. So with that said, there are a lot of options here. Uh, sublime and Atom are good options, not the only options, but good options. And uh, yeah, probably pick the open source one though especially considering the topic that we're covering <laughs> you know those times where you sneak into that room where that computer and you see that terminal open with the root login and you sit down and start executing your commands and all of a sudden somebody walks in and so you start typing clear randomly as fast as you can to erase your tracks well don't panic there's an easier way to do that instead of typing clear Try pressing Control plus L. In most terminals, that will clear your screen and you're ready to start with a fresh session all over again. And then you can just tell people you're running an LS to see what directory you were. I've uh, never had this experience. Yeah, it seems... You've never had this experience? No. Seems odd. It's out of nowhere. (laughs) (laughs) I have it every time I sit down at your computer, Ryan. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) I'm trying to control L as fast as I can when my wife walks in the room. Like, clear that terminal. I don't want you to know these secret commands. (laughs) In addition to that, you can also press Control U to clear just your current line of text. So, for example, maybe your password that you mistyped, or you can start typing it correctly from scratch. One other thing I'll throw in there, too. Not all, but most terminal applications where they allow you to specify the password in, in line, if you just omit the password and press Enter, it will then prompt you for a password, not saving that password in your bash history. So something else to be aware of when you're setting when you're setting servers up and so on and so forth. Um, and, and a lot of times in guides, you'll see where it'll say like TACP or TAC password or TAC TAC password. If you just don't enter it in and press enter, try that. A lot of times it will prompt you for the password and you'll be able to enter it without it being stored somewhere. That's very cool. The control U was something that I didn't know about. And when I'm doing passwords with SSH, I'll mistype a key or I think I mistyped a key. 
And I'm like, ah, and I hit the, I just hit backspace like a billion times to make sure that it's all raced and then do it again. The control you to me is like, yes, I love it. Yeah. There's also a way of doing it. (laughs) Well, here's the thing. So true story. I'm doing my red hat certification test and it's a time test and you have 26 things to do. And one of the first things I had to do was boot off of a, uh, off of a USB drive to get into the installer. Now, let me ask you something, something, Ryan, if I handed you a computer and a flash drive and told you to get into the boot menu and the boot key was F12, let's say, cause they tell you that, uh, what would you do? Describe the process. I, I, I'm lost already. Well, you plug the, you plug the USB key and you start wrapping on the F12 key, right? Okay. Yeah. To, so to, here, here to boot a computer up. That's what we're talking about. I was still yeah. thinking about right. why I need to clear my screen because my wife walked in the room. <laughs> oh, that was because you were in her root terminal. So I'm sitting there Actually. in the test and I'm tapping on the F12 key. And the guy sitting next to me looks over at me and goes, why don't you just press it once? And I look over at his screen because now mine is at the boot menu and I'm getting into there and he's restarting his computer, pressing F12 once, missing it all the way boots up, restarting it again, press F12 again. I'm like, that's why. Interesting. I thought the story was going to be like, he told you some secret thing that he figured out, but no, it turns out hammering on your keyboard during that process is exactly what you're supposed to do. That's what I've done forever. Yeah, that's what I do. Yeah, exactly. But there's like, there's like a very small minority of people that think that that's irritating or bad for the computer or whatever. I mean, especially with SSD, it's impossible to time it now. So, like, right. you, you well, have SSD to. and UEFI. Yeah. yeah, that too. Like, it's 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 so it's so fast that you have to hit it a thousand times In to fact, even get to it. On a lot of new Windows installations, when I'm wiping them off to put Linux, what I'll do is boot into Windows, then restart, advanced startup options, start from 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 UEFI, shut off secure boot, and then because it's actually easier to get into that menu from Windows than it is to try to hit the the key by the way can we standardize on keys at some point please yeah that'd be nice i have to i have to use f11 to mine so yeah that'd be nice if we actually could just well but, i'm uh, gonna remember control u and control l i'm gonna remember the next time i'm hacking my wife's root right for sure and also control w and control k do a similar thing where it clears the line from depending on where your cursor is so like control w i think it's like the direction everything previous to the cursor and then k is everything behind the cursor so that's another, it's not, it, it's not as useful for, you know. Oh, thanks for stealing our tip for next week. Now I have nothing. You get no tip next week, people, because Michael ruined it. Control K, Control W were the greatest tips ever I, that we were going to release on a special. I'm episode. sorry. For Whatever, provi- I'm sorry for providing a tip that's re- relevant to the previous tip. My bad. <laughs> I'm glad you feel bad about it. Yeah, of course. I'll work on it next week. Something else for sure. That was my favorite tip and trick. The wife walking in on you in a dark room on your computer and you clearing the terminal is so stupid. What were it's you brilliant, doing? Noah. I was it's brilliant. What is the use case? <laughs> what if you're pseudoing and your wife catches you? Yeah, you don't want to get caught pseudoing. Crazy. Of course it is, but I, I just I, I use Control L because I don't like seeing all the text there at all times. So like previous things that I did like an hour ago or so, so I just hit Control L. I would L just usually over. write clear. But now I mean, it's control L. Yeah, but control L is, is basically the same thing. And they don't actually clear anything. If you want to scroll your terminal, it'll yeah, still be there. Up. I was just going to say that. Yeah. I was just going to say, you yeah. really need to close the terminal out altogether. And then let's be honest, unless you're erasing your bash history, it's not, it's like trivial to go back and see what you were doing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's just, it's for the quick things. You just, you know, you know make sure that they don't, t- they can't see that you're pseudoing too much. So in this week's gaming section, we have AI Dungeon. So if you want a dungeon crawling game that you can play from your browser, then we've got something awesome for you because you do not need a special CPU. You do not need the latest GPU to run this. 
It's just a simple, almost mud-like game, but hold on, don't write it off yet, that you can play for dungeon crawling. The game's called AI Dungeon. It's completely open source, so you can check out the code on GitHub. You can play for free right now, so if you need something to you know waste some time on, have some fun with, it's absolutely free, but there is a cost if you want to do multiplayer, if you want to play with your friends, which I'm hoping my friends here, the only ones I have, my digital friends, We'll play some of this dungeon crawler with me. It's $4.99, and you can go on some adventures there. What differentiates this from a standard MUD, for those who are of the age that they even know what that term means, is that this is written with interpreted AI, which means you can type anything you want in natural language, and it uses AI algorithms to try to figure that out and execute on it. It's different from a MUD because a MUD, you have to type certain things in a certain syntax to pick up the key or go through the door or whatnot. And this uses AI so that you can type what you're thinking. And it basically creates a Dungeons and Dragons like role playing experience. Is this like Zork or something? I haven't played Zork, so I don't know, but maybe. I don't know. Is it like it's always a text based dungeon crawler thing? Yeah, it's text based. You play it right through your browser. It's kind of, it reminded me of MUDs. I don't know if you all are. I've never uh, heard of MUD, but I think think it's the same kind of thing. So I think it's the same. Yeah. Like Zork is just like, I think, a, the name of a game from like early 90s or something that's kind of similar yeah. to this. I thought this was a pretty cool idea, and I love that they yeah, like added it. a multiplayer element. I love that it's open source, but they still have a way to monetize by just adding kind of an additional feature in there, but everybody can go experience it for free. So go Very check cool. out AI Dungeon. Get your game on. A big thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us by watching or listening to Destination Linux. If you want a behind-the-scenes pass into the making of the show and an opportunity to chat with us live, consider becoming a patron. Our patrons help keep this show going, and they get perks like access to the live recordings and unedited versions of the show. So if you miss it, you can't make Sunday. You still get to watch all of the material raw right there from your computer. The best part is you can join for just a few dollars on Patreon or sponsors. Destination Linux also offers a great way for you to become a part of the community by going to destinationlinux.network and joining our forums. Discuss the show, the network with listeners from all around the world, all in one place. Now, if you're looking for more live chat sessions, we invite you to join our interactive Telegram group where we have over 1,300 members of the community all interacting with one another and sharing their passion for Linux. If you'd like to learn more, we invite you to head to destinationlinux.network. We love hearing from you, so please get back to us and provide some feedback on any burning questions you may have. Send videos or links to comments at destinationlinux.org. Please try to keep the comments brief as we may include them in a future episode of the show. Also, don't forget to check out the DLN store and pick up some swag from across the network of podcasts and shows. We have limited edition designs there to show off all the founding members of Destination Linux Network. Grab yourself a hoodie, t-shirt, coffee cup today. And many people claim, and we already know Emma's claim this, that wearing a DLN shirt is a life-changing experience as soon as we send her one. Yes, exactly. Uh, And you want more content from us, then the fun doesn't stop here. We also have our own channels you can check out. You can check out Ryan by going to youtube.com slash dosgeek, where he'll fill your brains on hardware, software, and all things Linux. You can find my content at tuxdigital.com, where I do a weekly in-depth Linux Good News podcast called This Week in Linux and other Linux-related content. And Noah can be found at the AskNoahShow.com, where he does a weekly talk radio show at 6 p.m. Central on Tuesdays. You can join him, and he'll answer your questions on Linux, tech, business, and all kinds of stuff. And also, Emma, where can, you, where can people find you? I am on Twitter at Social Happiness, and socialhappiness.us is my website for positive and happy things every day. And you can also email me at Emma at System76.com. Nice. 
Also, I, I just wanted to say like the, the, this, the, the daily happy notes that you put on socialhappiness.us is really nice. I just, it's also, it's just fun to say like quote or a, a notice or something like that. Just, it just brightens my day. So thank you for doing that. Make sure to check out the other Destination Linux Network shows like Hardware Addicts, Linux for Everyone, and DLN Extend. And also our very own Jason Evangelo for Linux for Everyone created a folding at home group for the Destination Linux Network, so like we talked about earlier in the show. So be sure to join that so you can help uncover valuable information about COVID-19 and other diseases. You can join the DLN uh, folding at home group by, going, by using the code 240869. We'll have that linked in the show notes below. Everybody have a great week. And remember that the journey itself is just as important as the destination. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. See you next week. Bye-bye. Yay! <laughs> I'm a muffin man. That's ridiculous. You're the muffin man? <laughs> <laughs>